Welcome to Climate Insiders, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the climate revolution. My name is Johan Berno, and I'm on a mission to shake things up. It is time we get serious and address this climate crisis. In each episode, I'll provide a platform for top climate thinkers, entrepreneurs, and investors to share their insights, innovations, and contrarian views. Let's learn from visionary thought leaders and hear their ideas that can profoundly reshape society and bring us one step closer to a sustainable world. In today's show, I'm receiving Marie Eklund, the founder of 2050, a French climate tech fund. She's a superstar investor in the French ecosystem. She was partner at Elia Partners, where she invested in Cretail early on, which then IPO'd at the NASDAQ and still remains to date one of the biggest success stories of the French tech. She then co-founded Daphne, a generalist VC fund. In 2012, she co-founded France Digital, bringing together French VCs and entrepreneurs to make the French digital ecosystem thrive. She's been busy and she loves to take on new challenges. This time, it's Climatech. She launched 2050 in 2020 with profound innovations at the fund construction level to truly solve the systemic crisis that we're facing. We cover a lot in this episode. It gets technical at times, but there's a lot to learn from someone as inspiring as Marie on alignment, what that means as a fund manager to stay aligned, why it's not easy during bearish cycles and when fundraising is made extra hard. The future of the venture capital industry to really solve the crisis and why it's not just technological, but also juridic and structural, why they created a chief knowledge officer and an open source climate tech course with the University of Paris Dauphine to spread knowledge and leverage the commons. Enjoy. Mary, it's great to have you on Climate Insiders. Welcome. Thank you. So how would your best friend finish the sentence, Mary Eklund is? Uh, I think she said an entrepreneur in finance. That's very specific. That sounds very rational and not a lot of emotions in there. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, I agree. They would also say I'm super energetic. I'm super passion driven or mission driven. And they would say I am very aligned. Aligned. Great. And we we're going to talk about alignment. This is what, you know, brings us together. So I also have right off the bat a question that I was dying to ask you why 2050 let's say let's just be honest here it might have sounded cool three years ago but funds are now abusing of it these days <laughs> 2150 i even came across 2100 you name it <laughs> so why 2050 so in the first place i thought it was a good date because one of the major difference about what we do is that we are backcasting the future and not reproducing the past which is what the classic finance does. Classic finance works really like machine learning. You're looking at mm -hmm. historical data and you are making decisions today based on what has worked in the past. Work meaning earning a lot of money. And so I don't see how we're changing any trajectory like this. So the idea from the beginning was to say, we actually should project the world we want to live in and we should make decisions today that optimizes the chance of us actually living in that world because money is power and when you invest you're absolutely not predicting the future you're crafting the future you're shaping the future it's way more self-fulfilling than what usually people say and so it was always this idea of okay let's project ourselves in 2050 and let's today make these type of decisions and 2050 sound like a good dimension in time because 
it's still a moment where most of people feel they will be living in that period of time, but it's sufficiently far away that you can imagine something new. Now, honestly speaking, do you think we're going to hit bottom before we bounce back? Or there's going to be a, a linear magical trajectory where we're going to solve this? In finance, they Nothing call that a soft linear. landing. <laughs> so more more Darwinian style or Schumpeterian sort of shock and then we start over. I think we are going to get through that through um, the latest period of Darwin, which was not about the, the strongest one survives, but about the collaborative one survive. And so it's, mm -hmm. it's least new that Darwin at the end of his life actually came to the conclusion that was making ecosystem more um, resilient. It was when actually different species were um, helping each other or having a, a role in the ecosystem that was nurturing the other species. And I think this is what we should be aiming for. Yeah, that's true. And now another question I, I, I was kind of curious to ask is you come from the generalist VC world. So you've been programmed to think like a, a generalist VC and it's been great, great trajectory of the last 30 years. Uh, why that change, right, of, uh, of, of lands and, you know, jumping guns to the climate side? It doesn't sound like a straightforward transition. Um, what's the story behind this shift? Maybe one event that triggered the whole transition. I think it's more, uh, it's not one event. It's more the end of my learnings. Like it all brought me to there. It's the, everything that I've been living Converges. through is tech is converging to the fact that we're actually not living into a digital transformation. The true transformation we're living in is sustainable transformation. And this is what we should be tackling. And I have been confronted through all my VC, digital VC generalist times into what is making this model completely not appropriated to fuel the sustainable transformation. And so the reason that I became this uh, more regenerative, regenerative investor or sustainable investor is because I feel this is actually the true transformation of the economy that we're living through and that mm. tomorrow's champions are the ones who's going to solve these problems. But also because I believe as an entrepreneur, I see a complete opportunity of redesigning the venture capital model to be able to make the most of it. All right. So that great, great uh, segue here. So you're trying to evangelize a new fund model. So let's get into the specificities of 2050. It has a peculiar juridic form and we don't see that often in VC. Can you tell us more, I guess, about the, the those differentiating sure. structures and how you intend to even make this the new standard? <laughs> so I'll ask the, I'll answer the last question first. I think you don't need to create a standard. You need to create a pattern that shows it's actually working because finance is machine learning. So if you demonstrate a pattern and you show that it is actually bringing triple performance, so financial performance, but also social and environmental performance, then people will follow because that's the way finance is built. So it's all about showing that there is alternatives that are performing and to demonstrate the pattern. And then to your first question, 2050, because we are really designing everything to make the most of sustainable transformation, we realize it has to be based on two pillars, two legs. The first one is this idea that one of the biggest difference between sustainable transformation and digital transformation is that it tackles value chain shift. You cannot transform a company 
and be, make, make it sustainable without having its suppliers changing, having you know the end cycle of their product change. So you have to think about changing the whole value chain from production to recycling, right? Mm-hmm. And that means you are dependent on the fact that everyone shifts kind of at the same time and have solutions for that because your carbon footprint is not going to decrease sufficiently or it's not in your hands if you don't have any potential suppliers who are also making their carbon footprint decrease, right? So we do invest not only in companies, but in ecosystems to support that market shift. So that means we invest in companies all over the value chain. But one thing that is always preventing market to shift, and I have been seeing that from within in the tech industry, and I've been overcoming this with uh, France Digital, is you need to tackle systemic uh, issues or challenges that cannot be solved by a business model. Like when we were on the tech side, the lack of digital talents in Europe, the lack of growth capital at the time in Europe, uh, regulatory issues, they could not be tackled by one single company. They had to be tackled at the ecosystemic level of tech. And this is why I founded France Digital, to be able to find, identify solutions and make them move forward and accelerate that market shift by really tackling systemic issues. We do the same thing by dedicating 10% of the money our investors invest into supporting these what we call ecosystem assets. So that will be open sustainable knowledge, that would be R&D around sustainable finance or alignment, uh, that will be supporting uh, portfolio advantages or things like that. And not only do we dedicate 10% of our investors' money, but we also, because we have built a regenerative fund, we also reinvest like half percent of our performance fees into fueling this. So it's really part of the model to say we want to invest in ecosystems, so companies all over the value chain, but also into solving these ecosystem assets that we or nodes that we need by building these assets. So not only do you have that, those specificity, we're going to cover the rest of the you know the, the the structural differences as well, the fact that you're evergreen, et cetera, et cetera. But you, one could argue that this can only happen when you're in a position of strength, when you kind of dominate or you have a brand something established that is recognized, and then you can push something new. When you're at the bottom of that mountain, especially in a bit of a slowdown, economic slowdown right now, where the fundraising is a challenge, it's much harder to push new ideas brand new ideas. What would you say to that? I think it's always hard. And I think in period of crisis like that, people tend to question the fact that what has worked in the past will work again because it's not working anymore. So it's also an opportunity of people, you know, asking themselves the right question and being open to change because old recipes are not working anymore. Uh, of course, if I continue in a, you know, playing devil's advocate, I would say if I were to sum up the way I perceive 2150 is uh, your Article 9 Climate Tech Fund, which is not a differentiating in itself. There's a lot of them in Europe, but you do evergreen investment, which means that you do not put pressure on early liquidities. You ride along until the founders feel like it's the right time or the market dictates, right? So kind of shift. But you're also giving 100% of your Manco to a perpetual purpose trust, right? So that means that the what we call Société de Gestion or the management corporation is basically preserving that shareholders alignment. 
and and you finance the open source projects. So, so you have a lot. Uh, so one could argue that it's it's a, it's better to pick your battles and focus on maybe on the climate and do it well and not trying to shift a lot of things at, at once. What do you think? I think we will not drive systemic change by incremental change. And I've tried. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not the first time I tried putting intention only in the old model is not going to make it work better. It's not a question of intention. And so the reason for that is like, if you look at classic closed fund models, right? The mm -hmm. fact that you have this time frame of liquidity, which is creating artificial pressure on founders is a major source of misalignment between VCs and founders, right? And so, and, I, and not only with VCs and founders, but also with VCs and LPs, because you have different funds, you have different LPs and different funds, you're not completely aligned on the uh, interest. And so one fund is working, the other less working, it's not the same people, where do you put your time, right? So we really wanted the product that is aligning interest fully. So in everyone in the same fund, and to your point, is also allowing the entrepreneurs and the companies we're funding to go all the way through their potential. We do have like partial liquidity events on the way through because you also need to incentivize your LPs, but we don't put pressure on selling the whole company, right? We take care, we manage liquidity ourselves. It's, it's becoming part of our role and our job. And The interesting part of that is that if you think about what I was saying, that it is a value chain shift, meaning you need companies that are changing the way we produce goods and that are going to build new type of factories. So we're investing in a company called Pebble, for example, which is based in Stockholm, which is doing carbon mineralization, um, meaning that they are basically producing carbon storing, CO2 storing cement or concrete, right? So... And that in the five, six year time frame just doesn't work, right? And there's this famous study by the MIT in 2016 around why the clean tech bubble exploded. And that is clearly showing that part of the reason is because the VC time frame and fund was so short compared to what needed to happen in the change of infrastructures, in the time of the type of new industrial solutions and all that, that basically it's only funded like SaaS company or software company and, and lost money on the rest. So we need to get over that uh, and to have like this permanent capital vehicle that is recycling money. So that is nurturing the LPs as well. But we need to build that cycle of liquidity in a very different way. Absolutely. And I'm all for it. I'm not, you know, I'm trying to debunk all the time the incremental mindset of, of finance and VC. But one could say that if we zoom even out, and there's been a lot of luminaries in France, you know, uh, for example, Aurélien Barraud, Jean-Marc Jancovici, or Timothée Parik, you know, arguing that what we need is a, is a slowdown, is a degrowth. And, and green growth is BS. It's just a fairy tale. And what we're trying to sell as the venture industry is just doing a little bit of the same thing, but just trying to reduce a bit of the footprint. But it is a distraction from the core of the root problem that we need to address. So if I would to, to push your argument even further, saying that incrementally, we're not going to solve this. What about the, the core dilemma of VC faces? Well, so two things. One thing is... The way finance was built 
is really because it's relying on mathematical models and in math you can optimize one dimension right it's very hard to optimize two dimensions so basically a lot of people's mind are framed in a way where impact is a cost to profit or profit is a cost to impact in nature you do have win-win models to come back to my darwin like late darwin example you know if you're giving to your ecosystem and that the ecosystem is in good health, therefore you can give back, and then you're in better health yourself and you can give more, and that can create like win-win relationships. This is what we're trying to tackle, to really invest only in companies that are aligning their business interests together with the interests of society and the planet. So the way we think about the business models, for example, is really we want to see that we are funding companies that their unit economics and their growth actually is driving uh, impact growth, right? So this is, and we're setting, you know, the thinking and the framework for all these companies to think that way. Overall, at a macro level, what it will mean in terms of growth is different story. What we do is investing in companies that we believe because they have solved this, will be the champions of tomorrow. Do I answer your question? So it's a bit of a, um, if the end goal is to change our civilizational model and the VCs or the visionaries that are able, that are enabled new industries for you to prosper, uh, aren't, is the idea of trying to greenify the, or decarbonize, decarbonize the, the industries just to slow down, right? We're, so, you know, we're, we're not helping ban the system completely. Yeah, we're yeah, just yeah. entertaining and fueling it. And the Javits paradox has demonstrated it's not by greenifying a subset of your industry that you will uh, you know, uh, supplement what has already been, what is already uh, in motion. Yes, I agree with that. It cannot be a piece of it. This is why we're building this system. And so to give you, I, I need to tell you a little bit more about our, what we call alignment to be able to answer that question more precisely then. So the reason we completely changed the model of VC is because we believe, and I've been living this in the last 23 years or 20 years, because I started 2015, 2020, that it is uh, driving misalignment or potentially driving misalignment structurally. So the one thing I told, already talked about is time frame, right? We need to think long-term, to make decisions today and to get full potential uh, long-term. And we also need to think about ecosystems. There's no way one person in the value chain is going to impact the whole rest. So we need everyone to move at the same time. This is why we're thinking and understanding like problems at an ecosystem or market level and not just analyzing one particular company. It's very different. If you want to have systemic impact, you need to have an overview of where the industry is going and that can help you analyze a company, right? And what we're applying then, because the true answer to your question is that it's the corporation model that we need to change. What is a company? What is the goal of the company? If all companies' goal and all the value that they are bringing in the world is only understood in terms of financial value, nothing is ever gonna change. So the reason we talk about alignment is to say one, so it's, it's a complete same thing. It's a complete change. The first thing, the first, it's a French word, alignment. It comes from the middle age. The first meaning of it is actually to stand upright. So it comes from the person that you actually are doing what you're thinking, what you're seeing, you have this kind of alignment built within. The second meaning of it is that it's the line, right? So it's all this alignment of interest between the persons, the team, um, the company itself, 
and the business model in its interest, um, the stakeholders of the company, the society, and the planet. So you actually want that you, at a personal level, have a positive impact both on revenue, on the society, on the planet, and that the team is incentivized on all this, not only on financial profit, and that the business model is actually linked to both, so that when you're making money, you also have positive impact on both. And that on top of that, if you actually um, go further, your growth is actually linked to your ecosystem growth, the stakeholders. It benefits not only to your shareholders, but also to the suppliers. So you think holistically as a key actor of your ecosystem. And then you analyze the impact more broadly around society. Is your product and your service actually being bought and having an impact on the people where it has, um, where it's most needed? And then on the planet. So that is the line. It's the second meaning of alignment. There is a third meaning to it, and this is where it comes. It becomes interesting. The third meaning is the lineage. It's the future generations. So it's how do you maintain that full alignment in time? And that is the governance piece. The reason that we change governance is that it's the only way I believe that we can maintain alignment in time is by making sure that all the strategic decisions are not only piloted by people who have financial interests, but also who are representative of your stakeholders and of the social and the planet environment. So the decision-making needs to change. And so you're right, what we actually are pushing at 2050 and the reason that we're so innovative and building a system is that I believe not only finance has a tremendous impact because it's one of the only places where you can actually act on a holistic manner and the problems we're facing are holistic. There's only three places where you can act holistically on the economy or and there's um, finance, there's education, and there's politics. Others, you're stuck in one industry. It's really hard to kind of push on the, on, on the other piece. But the other very interesting part of finance is that you have an impact at a very micro level, at the company level, and you can build new corporate best practices about how do you value, uh, what type of performance do you value? How are decisions taken in the company? How are people incentivized? And you can bring all these corporate best practices at the board of the companies that we're sitting at. And then you can build role models, new role models. And if you demonstrate that they're bringing not only financial performance, but more resilience in time because they're less riskier because they adapted to climate change, because they understand and have integrated like also the social and geopolitics challenge that we're facing because they're thinking long-term and thinking and accepting this kind of resilience that they have to build in so they're less riskier. And on top of that, they have other type of performance that we do not know how to value well now, but we will. So immediately when you talk about alignment, there's a, there's a bit of a... The, I always go back to that Oriental, right? The, the 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 Eastern philosophy of Yin and Yang. They find alignment and balance by bringing both energies. When we're consumed in the West by this Yang, which is that drive, 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 destruction, right? It's the destructive power. Very masculine energy, by the way. When the feminine energy, the Yin, is more protective. So we should definitely rebalance. But that's another topic. <laughs> So when I think about alignment, I also look at the capital stack. I always visualize it as a pyramid, right? At the very top are the, the LPs or the pension fund governments. The guys that are calling the shots at the micro level because they're in control of those billions. And at the very bottom, the base of the pyramid are the founders, the entrepreneurs. You're 
pitch here aligns very well. Of course, they want a, an investor that backs them with an alignment in, in long-term incentives. So it's great. It's super great you know, for most founders to hear all this. What about the LPs? What about when you have conversation with the top? You know, they are super finance driven. They like to check boxes. They think, I'm, I'm generalizing obviously, but they, uh, it's a much harder conversation to have. Have you gone to an, in, an inflection point where you've compromised or you're considering compromising on some of those things or, or not? Because it's a holistic view and I would break your own internal alignment to compromise on any of those points? That's a great question. The most difficult part in fundraising is that to your point, the people who are allocating money, they're allocating to existing boxes. We have no mm -hmm. box. <laughs> of course, it's new. It's fine. I mean, in general, you need to have historical data on the type of products you're selling, which we don't have, and a great track record at a personal level, which we do have. Mm -hmm. So the only reason that we can convince people, the, we have one of the two, but people who are allocating a lot of money and who are not in a situation that they can actually innovate on their end, they're just like executing mandate. There's no way they're going to invest in us. They can't even, even if they would like, because it, it's not their mandate. It's not even a question of, of will or do they believe in it or not. It's a question of it, it's not what they're asked to do. So the... What is interesting, though, is that a lot of these players now realize the gap between where their assets are and where the world is going mm -hmm. and what is going to be valuable in, in the future and also how it's going to impact the, the economy that they're dependent on for their core business in the future. How do they mitigate that? So they're starting to realize that themselves, they need a new type of products to actually take, make the most of the sustainable transformation. And we can be a very interesting source of inspiration because we're like this R&D, like uh, Poisson Pilote, yeah, so uh, mm -hmm. avant-garde player that is learning so much. A bit of a as, guinea pig. And so that they can accelerate their learnings on their side. And so they're even looking at us in a more kind of strategic way mm. of saying, one, it's really interesting because we're going to short-term learn a lot for our own transformation. And in long-term, you know, we do believe that companies who are um, sustainable, who are aligned, are going to be the champions of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So, but it's, it means we're not talking to the same people. Yeah, that's right. And... This is so important, by the way. This conversation is behind uh, closed doors, right? Every fund manager is having with their LPs. And I find that because the, the market is cyclical, right now we're on the down cycle, a bit of an extended winter. And if you draw a line between the brain and the heart, I find that we migrate, move along that line towards the brain or become more rational. They look at numbers, they're more you know, restrictive with their... The, the scope of thinking. And when we tend in the bull market, there's a lot more capital available. We go tend to trend towards the heart. So that's why passion projects, but also new models, something that aligns both the financial, but also the social impact and to, to, to receive a lot more funding. So unfortunately, we're in a bit of a brain territory right now, making it really hard for anyone to fundraise if you don't fit all the boxes. So yeah. does that mean that because you have a such a long-term horizon, your personal background enables that, right? I don't, you know, I don't know about your personal finance situation, but most fund managers don't have that luxury, so they start compromising. 
They start accepting mm -hmm. money from governments that they should not, or they compromise on their own models. What would you advise to them? Stay strong, stand? Yeah, I think you should understand what is really core to the model. To the model. So for example, when we started, we had this belief that the secondary market on venture capital funds was going to thrive because it was thriving on, on startups. And so that we didn't need to be as kind of um, hands-on the liquidity as managers um, because it was kind of going to sort by itself because the tools were there. You know, we have all the infrastructure just to make secondary transaction really easy. Um, so, but we realized that actually, no, this, for example, was part of the value proposition of the product to build liquidity within. Because today, what we do is that every year, we are actually offering redemption. So to buy the LP shares back for 5% of the whole fund every year. And that is starting 2027. So it's, you can get liquidity in three years from now, right? Which is way shorter than any other fund. So it's smaller, right? It's smaller because it's not like one company is at a sold. It's us managing our own liquidity. But you can get regular returns every year, whereas in a venture fund, it's like more lo longer term that you actually can get access to that. It's an, and it will not be as recurring, right? So it will be more um, infrequent or more irregular. And also we added a second leg to it because we realized it was even not enough to kind of really um, reach the level of liquidity that was making LPs comfortable. And so we added a second leg uh, to that liquidity, which is to say whenever we have proceeds in the fund, and it will be more to give time, you actually need more partial exits in the middle, right? That's how you do it. And so each time we do have an exit in the fund, either uh, because it's a partial exit or because it's a full exit of a company for whatever reason, well, then we will, same thing, dedicate 25% of that money to buy LP share back and to give like liquidity back as well. So now we're in a situation where it's actually not such a big long-term debt. It's a more, this is why we call it regenerative because, mm. you know, you're actually reinvesting like 75% of the money of the proceeds, but you get return for everyone. So it's regenerative for everyone, for the LPs, for us, because we get carried interest or performance fee, but also for the commons or the open sources assets that we're building or the ecosystem assets we're building because we're giving away half the performance fee. So it's really, you know, everyone benefits from it. The portfolio companies, because we get more money to reinvest in them or to invest in new ones. The LPs, because they get this like regenerative and liquidity. The fund managers, because we get the performance fee and the um, ecosystem assets, right? So that we, the product evolved, but we never got rid of the kind of evergreen long-term view. That, that is a no-go, Yeah. right? So we improved, and this is the kind of, and, and when I met Oni Patton Powell from Oxford, it was really, I met her at Catapult Future Fest in Oslo, and it was, she's, she's great. So I, I recommend reading her book, Adventure Finance. And her view, when she met me, she was like, wow, never seen a system like that. Like, and she was, and we were writing, and at the end, she stopped and she said, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> she said, I'm really sorry for you. I know how fundraising is for you. When I talk to all these uh, fund managers that are doing like more long-term patient capital, permanent vehicle, uh, 
well, I know how hard it is because they're not in the box. So I'm sorry that you have to go through that. And I said, yeah, I know I'm climbing the Mount Everest on Faith Norris, right? And she said, no, 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 no. You're not climbing the Everest. You're pushing the top down for the others. <laughs> and I was like, this mm. is this is great. And Ani, she really has looked into it. She's a great finance researcher. And she says, I see no other way than to go through permanent capital vehicle. So we just need to create the pattern. We just need to iterate on the model of the product to find the best way of managing both liquidity for LPs, but also mm. providing greater performance in the long term and benefiting from the fact that you can have, because when you regenerate money, it's, it's, um, you're adding, you know, the, the best VC funds, they reinvest part of the process before the end of the fund. This is how they build performance because money is working twice. So there is a lot of potential to build a very good financial performance in an evergreen model, but you just That's need true. to tackle that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we could talk for hours about the construction and maybe one day we'll do a podcast on this, the construction dynamics of a fund. And you can indeed reinvest if you have an exit on year seven, you can reinvest. You have three more years to you know make that, that money grow. Uh, you've created a bit of a secondary market for LPs, which is kind of unheard of. It's really, really great. And it's really inspiring to for you to stick to your, your values, your alignment. You know, you keep stressing that out. We should all align. I, I tend to think that the fund managers that can do this are the ones that are the true entrepreneurs at heart. They have that North Star and they stick to it. The, the more opportunity type of fund managers that come from the investment banking consulting world tend to stick to boxes because they're kind of been wired and, you know, their DNA comes from that. I world. agree. So yeah. Don't compromise yeah, on your North you. Star. <laughs> Thank you. And I, I wanted think, to... You know what? I think the governance we put in place is helping us a lot. Mm -hmm. So when we, you talked about it a little bit, then it's so unusual. I'll just add a little on this. So yeah. the other kind of misalignment, potential misalignment, not saying it's the case for everyone, don't, um, but there's a potential misalignment in the business model of venture capital between arbitraging, between management fees and um, carried interest. Carried interest is you're aligned with your stakeholders. You're not going to make any money if the founders are not uh, very successful and if your LPs are not becoming very rich thanks to your performance, right? So this is aligned. On the management fee side, the amount of money that you're making, and I know there's inertia that if you really don't perform well, you know, fund three or fund four, it's going to be hard, but it's 20-year time. So basically the... Um, the main incentive on management fees is indexed to assets under management, right? So it's easy to come in a place where there is tension between should I go and raise my next fund and how big should it be? And how should I spend my time on supporting or putting resources to build greater performance at the portfolio level? And on the management fee side, it, it is not completely in line because it's only shared with the managing partners of the fund who have shares in the Manco. So it's also, and I've been through that, really hard to share because if you want to add new people on the partner side of things, so they need to buy the shares of the management company, which are very early on super expensive because mm -hmm. it's a business where, because when you buy, when you sell your fund, when you fundraise, you have revenue guarantee for the next 10 years. Well, the value of your manco goes up 
all the way through super early on. So it's very difficult to after share that because they need to buy the shares, the newcomers. So how do you build diversity? No, it's, it's, there's no access to that. So this is why I gave away 100% of the Manco so that we would not be biased by this. So I gave it to this Perpetual Purpose Trust, which is basically a board of stakeholders. So which we have the LPs on board, people representing LPs. We have people representing our founders. So Pablo, uh, CEO, co-CEO, uh, Marta Sjögren, she's on board. We present experts who are kind of representing society and the planet. So we have someone like Rashid Sumaila on the board of stewards, which is one of the best researchers. He just received together with Dan Pauli the Tyler Prize. Um, this year around all his work around ocean fisheries economics uh, in Vancouver, Canada. So it's, it's a very different set of different stakeholders, but that are here to ensure alignment of the whole management company and that we are not potentially misaligned by this shareholding structure uh, that can do it and that can build that bad uh, dynamics in the old venture model. Wow. So if I were to summarize, you're innovating on the LP liquidity, creating a secondary market. You're also innovating in making it um, 100% Manco owned so that so, so that there's no tied up to the initial creators of that fund and that sort of generational shift can happen exactly. more progressively. But you're also innovating, and this is something I wanted to touch on, on, on creating new role titles. And you hired a chief knowledge officer. <laughs> I would love to, to know what that means for you and, and why you think a, a VC should have a, a CKO. You like that? We have a chief alignment officer also. Oh, wow. I, I thought it was you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so what are those the... two roles about? Yeah, so the, the chief knowledge officer is how do you invest in ecosystems? How do you identify where the biggest problems are and what are the biggest solutions? Well, you need to spend time understanding that and building that knowledge within the team. But because we believe it's not about us being right, it's about increasing awareness in everybody's mind of what's happening and also sharing that with our ecosystem portfolio companies, but LPs and others, because you can act upon what you understand. And when you dig all this stuff, you realize there's actually a lot of things that we know, except they're not said or they're not taught. And so we start and we have based our climate change investment strategy or our climate investment strategy based on knowledge. So we started by building this open climate course together with Université Paris-Dauphine uh, à Paris, so with uh, academics, and that is compulsory for all first-year students in, in the university now. And it's all about 360 degree around climate change. So understanding the basics of physics behind climate change, basics of biology behind biodiversity loss, how do you project yourself in IPCC scenarios, uh, the history of energy, social sciences, you know, all the kind of political decisions that drove to that. So you can actually, after you have this kind of uh, understanding of what is happening and what to look for in terms of negative impact, but also positive impact. And so it's based on this. And this course is under Creative Commons. We don't need to understand it by ourselves. We want everyone to know that because we will be successful if this is a market dynamic, not because we're smarter than anybody else. It's because we are part of this great movement that is collaborative and that people is making it happen. 
And so we have drawn our climate investment strategy on that, so I'm not going to tell you, but the chief knowledge officer is really, um, I, I can tell you, it's just in, in terms of time. I, you know, I, it was not the question, so just, just saying. It's not that I don't want to. I can, if you ask another question on it. I'm just <laughs> going to focus on the chief knowledge officer. So his role is really to kind of um, do the transition between understanding what the problems are, being able to identify like broad areas that are actually providing keystone solutions, things that we should be tackling first because they're going to have the most impact and they actually are tackling the biggest problems. And if you solve a big problem, you know, then it's going to be a big business. So else it will not be a big problem. So it's, uh, uh, it's Guillaume Prejras and he's an ex-journalist. So he's coming from Les Echo and he used to, and we wanted journalists because they know where to dig, but also because they know how to make that knowledge accessible to the many, which is what we want. And it's, it's a part of this kind of uh, ecosystem assets we're building, which is open, sustainable knowledge uh, that we can share under Creative Commons. So that kind of mm. course is available for anyone who wants. So everyone can access that. It's open source to anyone in yeah. Europe, not just in, in France. Is it in French or in English? We did both. Great. Amazing. So we'll link all that in the show notes. Yeah. Thanks perfect. for sharing all this. And, and all those roles that are kind of hybrid and esoteric are financed yeah. by the management fee. Or do you have, do you manage to create a bridge between all the programs to so support the, the salaries? Because this is basically a role that is providing um, uh, ecosystem assets, it's paid by this entry fee, 10% entry fee, that is dedicated to fuel the ecosystem assets. So we have really these two legs of revenue. And so it's quite complex internally because you need to um, have a different accounting kind of thing you know, mm. to link what is actually paid by the ecosystem assets or and the entry fee and what is paid just by the management fees company. It almost sounds like cryptonomics. <laughs> I know. It's, it's also helpful to have a governance on top of us. So we, we actually have to right. do it right. <laughs> well, well, we could go on and on forever talking about all those intricacies and all the, the, the consequences of this at the fund level. It's fascinating. Do you, are you publishing your findings on a yearly basis or quarterly basis so that the rest of the ecosystem can learn from those experiments? That's a great question. We want to. We thought it would be, I'll take your advice on that. We thought we needed to be a little bit more settled mm -hmm. to testimony, I mean, to tell what can work or not, because it's so innovative. It's actually hard and we've been iterating on different things, as I just said on the liquidity management part, for example. So I wonder if like state of the art of what we're doing today is interesting with all the caveat that, you know, for example, we have not opened liquidity yet. So we don't know if this is, mm. you know, to our best knowledge, what we believe is going to work, but we have not demonstrated it in reality. Right. No, it's, it, it's fair. You need a bit of more history okay. and, and empirical data to be able to release that. But we will stay tuned. I look forward to seeing those, those results published. Thank you so much for sharing all this. Super inspiring to follow your journey. Look forward to a lot more you know, innovations on the, the VC level in the future. <laughs> Thank you, Yuan. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much, Thank you for Mary. having me. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. If you haven't already, sign up for my weekly newsletter. Along with receiving updates about each new episode, you will also get one actionable insight every Saturday to boost your career, fun, or startup. 
My newsletter is value-packed, authentic, and full of unique insights. This newsletter is also the best way to join our growing community of climate investors. We found that building a community is probably the ultimate force multiplier, and it gives us the momentum we need to create profound change. Let's share and collaborate. I'm just here to empower you to get started and set you on a path to success so our collective ideas can flourish and expand. Come join us to drive huge impacts.